Welcome to Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. I'm your host, Maeve, and this week on the show, I'm joined by Kathy Flores, women's rugby extraordinaire. Kathy not only had a long and fruitful playing career, but she's coached at every level of the game, including club, college, and for the women's national team. And just this weekend, she'll become the third woman ever inducted into the U.S. Rugby Hall of Fame. On this episode, I talk with her about the growth of women's rugby, the challenges it still faces, and what we have to look forward to when women's rugby makes its Olympic debut this summer. But first, it's This Week in Sports. The bracket for the NCAA Women's College World Series is set, with eight teams starting play today, on Thursday, actually. The biggest story so far might be who didn't make it. The Florida Gators, two-time defending champ and the number one seed, were eliminated by Georgia in the Super Regional Round with a pinch-hit, walk-off, two-run home run that was just a beauty to center field. With the Gators out, it's anyone's game. The eight remaining teams split into two brackets of four that play a double elimination format. The winners of each bracket then face off in a best-of-three championship. Michigan now has a good shot to redeem their loss from last year's championship. This is their 12th appearance in the World Series, and they're now the highest-ranked seed left at number two. They play LSU in the opening round. Oklahoma, hot on their heels, is the number three seed. They were also the champs in 2013. They're coming off a 23-game winning streak, and they'll face off against rival Alabama in the opening round. And to finish it all off, the other teams included in that bracket of eight are Auburn, making their second appearance in a row, Florida State, and UCLA, which is a longtime contender with 11 national titles. The World Series will run from today, June 2nd, through June 7th or 8th, depending on if a third game is necessary in that championship round. It's airing on ESPN and ESPN2, so tune in. It is sure to be some exciting softball. Next up, over the holiday weekend, the United Women's Lacrosse League made its debut as the first professional women's lacrosse league in the country. The league is made up of four teams— the Baltimore Ride, the Boston Storm, the Long Island Sound, and the Philadelphia Force. In their inaugural season, they'll play at popular existing NCAA and U.S. lacrosse tournaments to promote their new league and to gain exposure among lacrosse fans. Players are paid a travel stipend, but no salary just yet. The league's founders, Digit Murphy and Aranda Kirby, are trying to temper ideas of success, saying that comparisons to men's leagues, or even to women's leagues in mainstream sports like basketball or soccer, skew expectations. For now, they're focusing on building a sustainable model. And part of that model includes introducing a few rules changes to the game. There's now a shot clock, two-point goals, and no more time stoppage on whistles. This is all an effort to entice fans to the women's game, which tends to have less physical contact and faster play than the men's version. Longer-term goals include becoming a feeder system to the national team as lacrosse looks to join the Olympics in 2024. So that does it for This Week in Sports, and when we come back, we're talking with Kathy Flores. All right, welcome back to the show. This week's guest is Kathy Flores, who is a force in the women's rugby world. 
Kathy began her playing career at Florida State University and later was part of the inaugural U.S. Women's National Rugby Team, where she continued to play for almost a decade. Her coaching career runs the gamut from college teams, including Florida State University, Cal Berkeley, and currently Brown University, to national clubs like the Berkeley All Blues and the Fog, which is a San Francisco gay men's team. And finally, she's also coached at the international level as a coach and development officer for USA Rugby. So quite the career. Kathy, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, I just laid out kind of the bullet points overview of your career, but I think it would be helpful to the listeners to hear a little bit in your own words about your life in rugby, how you started playing, how you transitioned to coaching, and also your role on the international scene. Well, I started playing after I, um, I went down to Florida State University intending to do a, a grad degree, um, which I didn't finish, but that's where I found rugby. It was at, <laughs> it was, um, I had played basketball in college and, um, I was looking for a sport to play and I'd always liked football. And a friend of mine just said, oh, you should see this sport. It's kind of like football. So I went out to it and it was a little frustrating at first being a D1 athlete. I didn't understand anything about it because it was so unlike any of the sports I'd ever played. You're sure. throwing the ball backwards and, you know, that type. The only thing I understood was tackling, basically. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, you know, I, I, I actually was thinking about, I'd played for about four weeks and practiced, and I was thinking, ah, I don't know if this is for me. I, I, I think I'm just going to quit after this tournament that we're going to. And then, as it will happen sometimes, at the tournament, everything just came forward, and I understood what was happening, and I went, oh, my God, I love this sport. And then I've been in it ever since. And on our team at FSU, we didn't really have a coach, so it was always players who kind of took a liking to the strategy, to understanding what was going on, uh, to become kind of the captains and coaches. So wow. I ended up being um, I ended up being a captain and a coach for I guess I was there for 15 years, and proceeded to be the captain and coach for 15 years along with Candy Orsini, who was uh, I was a forwards coach and she was the backs coach. Coaching just was something that I did because we didn't have someone. It wasn't that I was, um, you know, I, I was just so taken with coaching. I just wanted to play and I wanted to win. We liked to win. Hmm. And I felt like I could help us win. Um, so that was one of the reasons I really got into coaching. And then obviously I went out to California and played there for a few years, but I was getting older and it was really time for me to kind of stop playing because I wasn't enjoying the training. <laughs> I was enjoying the games. <laughs> You know, but yeah. having to recover from the training and the games and everything else, I was like, well, I don't really can't don't really do that. this. That's exactly right. <laughs> so um, I, I just I asked the All Blues on my last year when I retired. I said I would really like to coach you guys. You know, is is that okay? Would you be mm -hmm. okay with that? And they said, Yeah, that would be great. I was coaching with a um, another woman whose name was Deb Dennis, and she was actually on the national team also as a scrum half, and we coached together. And she played maybe one or two more years, and then um, then she was gone, and then I continued to coach with various people coming in and out, that type of thing, but mostly being the person that was coaching there. Mm -hmm. And then how did you transition to coaching at the international level? Well, you know, once I started coaching, I really liked it, and I wanted an opportunity to work with people who wanted to be the best at what they want, you know, at the sport. Mm -hmm. um, so I had applied in um, 2000 and 
did not get the position and then applied again in 2002 and got the position. And what I love about international coaching or about that level of coaching is everyone is working their butts off to be the person that's going to be on the field. So it's not like you have to motivate people to be good. Mm -hmm. They're all working to be the best people they can be because they all want to be able to play. Now, the hard part about that is you can't play everybody, you know, mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. can only put 15 people on the field and there's, you know, there's seven or eight subs depending on how you're playing. Um, and they may not even get in depending on how the game is going. So, you know, you could have rosters of 200 people that are national team players of which only 40 actually ever get to play. Hmm. So, I mean, that's the hard part. I mean, I would love everybody to be able to have the chance to play, yeah. but you know, you've got to, you can't really do that. Well, your, your career in rugby playing and coaching also seems to coincide with the rise of popularity more generally of women's rugby, um, kind of starting in the 70s with player-led clubs and things like that, and right. then um, becoming a, a, a national team later in the 80s. When you think of the story of women's rugby in the U.S., what are the major milestones that stick out to you? on the road to becoming an Olympic event? Well, I, I think it was starting with kind of regional teams, regional all-star teams, you know, so there were club teams. And then we kind of uh, started, there was the Southeast at the time, there was the East, there was the West, the Midwest, and the Pacific. There were only a few um, kind of areas. And then those have become different. They became other entities we split into seven regions and if you were going to have a national team you needed to be able to see you know you kind of started smaller in the regional regional all-stars and then those regional all-star teams would play against each other so ideally what you'd be seeing is the best of each region and then I think that led to the national team which I think mm -hmm. was 1987 I think is when we had our first match against Canada um, and I think that was how it started growing right you went from smaller club to regional, to national team. Well, it seems like it's been a somewhat slower, but also very methodical kind of rise and change to the current structure. And do you think that the state of women's rugby right now is the strongest and most talented that it's been? Um, I, you probably could say that of every future year. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, the, the, because the kids now, like everybody is lifting weights, everybody is running. You know, when in, in some of the earlier years, um, you didn't have programs for people to be on. Yeah. You know, now the national teams have programs and they put it out to people and they're constantly tested and all that to make sure that they're they're staying fit and all that type of thing. And, you know, in the early years, it wasn't quite as uh, strategic in that way. Not mm -hmm. to say that they didn't give out programs and stuff. It's just <laughs> that I don't know if we were tested quite as much. Right. Which I'm happy about at the time, but, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, women's sports in general has evolved. Definitely. Especially since, you know, Title IX in 1972. Yeah. So, um, but I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier sure. about um, that you found rugby when you were in college. Yes. And as I was researching for this episode and, and reading different stories of different players, it does still seem like, despite the gains in popularity, a lot of players are still coming to rugby a little bit later in their athletic lives. Um, first of all, does this strike you as true? 
And second of all, what are the advantages and the disadvantages to having a group of players that are somewhat athletically mature by the time that they get to rugby? Well, I think that um, girls rugby is, it hasn't been around as long as boys rugby. And when I say that, I'm saying middle school and high school. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And part of that, I wonder, this is just my own thoughts. I wonder if it's because there's not as many women who will become coaches and coach those young women. Mm-hmm. Because I know a lot of boys' teams start from fathers or rugby players who have a, you know, they have a nephew or they have a son or they have somebody like that, yeah. and they want them to have that opportunity. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's not to say that men shouldn't start women's teams, but that's not always their priority. Right. And so I feel like it, women really have to step up and start taking to coaching so that their their daughters and their nieces and everybody else can have the opportunities that young boys are having. And, and I have friends now that are stepping into those ranks, and I just think we need more women doing it, and there'll be more and more high school girls starting. Um, in terms of them coming to the sport, I'm sorry, what was the second part of that, Maeve? Um, that if you see advantages or disadvantages to having a group of players that are athletically mature by the time they get to rugby. Yeah, I mean, oh, definitely. It's always nice to have an athlete before they even come into rugby. Um, the thing is, is sometimes as it can be frustrating for them. As I yeah. was telling you when I was a basketball player, they're good athletes and they just can't quite get the hang of it. Yeah. But I know what we try to do, and, and I think probably a lot of coaches try to do, is we, we try to make it something like what their sport is. So if a soccer player comes and, and she's like, Oof, I said, well, just imagine this. You know how you guys work in threes all the time? You know, mm-hmm. Well, we actually work in threes too. And so if I can kind of liken it to the sport that they know, yeah. I think it kind of helps them get a glimpse of something that they can use to go, oh, okay. I kind mm-hmm. of see that. Right. And it kind of okay. helps them further their understanding a bit. Well, kudos to you for being a good translator between different types of sports. <laughs> I've done it a long time, Maeve. I've, yeah. I've, you know, I've done a lot of different things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go back to uh, your comment about, you know, if if girls have women as coaches um, and, and how that would influence the development of the sport and the development of players, because a, a a number of episodes ago, um, we were talking about the pay gap in in mm-hmm. particularly college sports and coaching, mm-hmm. and that for a lot of women's sports, it starts out as a very close-knit community, and there are a lot of women in kind of mentorship roles and coaching roles. And then once the sport starts to gain some more widespread popularity and it's seen as a more quote-unquote legitimate sport, mm-hmm. that that's when you see men starting to coach women's college sports. And the modern incarnation is now that you see male coaches of female sports who are paid more than female coaches Mm -hmm. of the same female sports. Mm -hmm. So from from the rugby perspective, are you seeing these types of gender dynamics play out or or is rugby still is women's rugby a a a female dominated space? Well, I mean, I think that in terms of club rugby, um, for women, there's not a lot of money there. Um, so I think it's that we don't have quite the donorship mm-hmm. that men might have. So a friend of mine was talking about she'd gone to, she was working with some men, and they went to, um, they were having a meeting about trying to fund a young 
young man's tour to someplace. And as those guys were talking, guys are just writing checks, 15 grand, 10 grand, just throwing them on the table. Yeah. And I have never seen that for a women's team, can I just mm -hmm. tell you? So working with a women's team. So I don't know that many men are coming to the women's club game in order to, and are making more money than women. I don't think there's a lot of money there generally because yeah. they're all supporting themselves. In terms of college, I think a lot of the college teams now, well, if you're talking college club, there's no money there either. I mean, there's there's some stipend, but there's yeah. not a lot of money. And I don't know that it's always men that will get that job. Um, yeah. I think it's that men will actually apply for it. And that's hmm. one of the things is women need to step up and apply for these things. Hmm. I, you know, a lot of women don't feel like they've coached enough or, I don't know, I couldn't get that job. And I'm like, why not? You played rugby. You know rugby. You know, yeah. why, why not just throw your hat in the ring? What, so the worst that can happen is, or not even the worst, but they can, they can say no or they can say yes. I mean, why would you just assume they will say no? You know, so yeah. um, in terms of collegiate varsity, which is what I am, or I should say collegiate NCAA, yeah. um, I think what they're trying to do is, and I'm not saying they're not hiring men, but I think with, with women's programs, they are trying to look at the role model for young women. Mm -hmm. and trying to look at women specifically for those roles. Um, not that they would keep a man out because they can't do that. But right. that if there's a qualified woman, they are actively looking for, I think, women to fill those roles, which I think is great. Yeah. Because I'll tell you what, I think it's going to be the same thing that you're talking about. In a few years, if this be continues, the NCAA thing grows to where we've got 40 or 50 teams, pretty soon I bet you those positions are going to start being taken by men. It seems like at the college level, when you talk about women's sports, it's kind of like there's women's basketball and then there's everything else. Right. And women's basketball, we're, of course, seeing, you know, male coaches getting paid more than female coaches, a, a tilt toward more male coaches in general than female coaches. So it's sort of this interesting question, I think, of when, when you're at this transitional point with a sport, especially at the college level, you know, what, what are the things that the people who are already involved can do um, to, to keep it within the realm of, of female mentors, which can be very important, but also recognizing that men can certainly be advocates and allies of women's sports as well. Oh, sure. And, and I... You know, I mean, the, the thing is, is, as women coaches, we can all advocate that for more young women, especially for like NCAA positions, that more young women coaches are the ones that we're looking at, right, mm -hmm. to foster that kind of mentorship to the young women. But we're not the administration. Yeah. You know, when it comes down to it, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure how administrations like look at things. Do they, do they feel like men are going to be stronger um, in terms of really keep a check on things and women are, you know, they're going to be softer to, on them or something. I mean, if you look at Pat Summit, she wasn't soft. Yeah. You know, yeah. she, she was a strong woman and then she even had people, players who didn't like what she did, but they played for her because they respected her. So yeah. I, I'm not quite sure, you know, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, I think that your point about, you know, at least at the college level, the administrators, and who they are and their point of view plays a large role as well. Yeah. Um, and that there are gender dynamics within administration as well oh. and who's the AD and who's, you know, being considered for jobs and things like that. Yeah. So it goes from top to bottom, really. Right. Um, okay, so let's switch gears a little bit um, because I have mentioned that, of course, uh, women's rugby for the first time mm -hmm. will be an Olympic sport this summer. Right. 
Um, so tell us a little bit about the setup of the tournament qualifying for the Olympics and what's the kind of Olympics 101 that people should be looking out for as, well, as it makes its debut. Let's hope I know what it is. Um, <laughs> I, I think this actually is the first time women's rugby will be in the Olympics. Now, the men were in in 19, I think it was 1920 and 24, mm-hmm. and that was actually as 15s. So then, then that was at, they were gone. And now this will be the first first time that women are in and men will be back in for a second time, but it will be a sevens. Um, so Can you explain quickly the difference between sevens and fifteens for listeners who sure. might not be aware? So fifteens, there are 15 players per team on the field. So that's 30 players on the field at one time, one referee, mm-hmm. two sideline referees. Uh, they're playing 40-minute halves with a 10-minute halftime. For a sevens game... There's seven players per side on the field, so there's 14 players on the field, one referee, two sideline again. They only play for a seven-minute half. Wow. Yeah, one-minute halftime and seven-minute half. Now, here's the thing. They're playing on the same size field. Whoa. So now you can understand why it's only seven-minute half. (laughs) 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 One run up that field, and you're like, holy mackerel. So, yes. Um, do you have any insight as to why sevens was chosen as the model rather than 15s? I only have my own personal view about yeah. why. Uh, one, it's cheaper because when we go to a World Cup, we go for like, um, I think it's two to three weeks. And you're, you're, you're covering 40 people, 40 players, staff, etc. Mm-hmm. So the World Rugby, which used to be called International Rugby Board, pays for all that. Hmm. So they're paying for 40 people for three weeks, right, per team right. for lodging, food, uh, transportation, hmm. field time, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's because it's cheaper, for hmm. one, okay? So I don't think that's the only reason. I think that the game is very exciting because it's short. And so we want to see some hits and we want to see some runs and seven minutes and whoo, now there's a break yeah. and there's another seven minutes. And then, you know what, that <laughs> game's done. Now there's another game. We get to watch these other people. We don't have to sit and watch people for 40 yeah. minutes, you know? Um, so that's my own personal opinion. I don't really, I wasn't in on the decision. So yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I can't tell you. Or I was also wondering whether there's, whether one format versus the other is, more popular, played more often, like uh, the favorite of rugby players themselves, or if this is maybe just a purely logistical decision. <laughs> well, I think it's, you know, also 15s is the original game, and, and 7s was always used as a teaching tool. Ah. Because, you know, you can, the good thing about it is it really uh, stresses the, the um, skills that are important. Running, evasive running, um, handling. Because mm-hmm. you have to be able to throw the ball mm-hmm. and tackling. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you could do it in a smaller format with just seven people instead of 15 people. Yeah. And also there's bigger holes in terms of on the field that, that now players who may not understand how to run and, and put somebody into space, yeah. the space is much bigger. So it's like, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. <laughs> so, you know, I, but I think that because it is, has become such, for some people, a very exciting game that I, I think that they felt like that it would be a good fit for the Olympics. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 
In terms of how men's rugby is played and women's rugby is played, there are lots of examples across different sports where there are slight variation in rules. Um, or even, for example, in soccer, where there's not a variation in rules, but people tend to prefer either the men's game for its strength or the women's game for its agility. And um, so are there differences like that in men's versus women's rugby? Is Are there pros and cons to each or rules differences perhaps? No, I, we're very much like soccer. There's mm-hmm. no no difference between the men and the women. And, and I think it's the same thing for rugby in the terms of what you just said about soccer. Yeah. The, you know, people like the men's game because of the physicality of it and the speed of it, you know. Yeah. And then they like the women's game because they feel like women think a lot more. Hmm. You know, and, and now I, I don't necessarily think that's true either way. You know, I obviously the men know how to strategize, uh, but, <laughs> but, but you know, yeah, exactly, <laughs> true, right? but, but there is, I mean, you know, when a guy makes a hit and he, and they're fast, the guys are fast, you know, so yeah. when he comes up and he makes a hit, you're like, whoa, yeah. but you know, I've got to tell you during the world cup, I saw some women make some hits and I'm like, yes, we're catching up, you know, <laughs> we are yeah. catching up. Totally. Um, so, you know, they always say that the women are, are much more, um, uh, our skills are much better, but uh, you know, at the, when you start getting to the elite level, yeah, yeah. it's the same. It's the same yeah. across the board. Well, so I was telling one of my friends that I was having you on the show, and and we were talking about women's rugby, and her first reaction was like, "Oh my god, but isn't it so violent?" And <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to perhaps air that thought and get your response to it. I I tried to argue that. Um, it's it's like the comparison that people make between rugby and football often. It's like you would think that football would be less dangerous because they wear pads and helmets and everything, yeah. but that that actually acts as like a like a placebo and then yeah. we think that they can't get hurt. And yeah. so in rugby you have a lot more kind of like strategy about your hits and things like that. So I wanted I wanted to ask the obvious violence question. <laughs> I think you just answered it right there, right? But I, I like to think of it as controlled violence, you know uh-huh. what I mean? Because, because, as you say, we're not wearing anything. So right. if you're running at me full steam, I'm going to think, okay, how can I best hit her and take her down where I'm not going to get hurt. I mean, I'm, truthfully, I'm not worried about you. But, but <laughs> right. you know, I've got to, if, if, I, if I do something funky, we're both going to get hurt. Right. But if I'm doing the right thing and tackling the right way and, you know, all that kind of good stuff, neither, it can be like a, you almost hear a crack sometimes like um, mm. uh, pads you yeah. for a really hard hit. And both of them will just jump up and run away. And you're like, oh. how did that but, you know, a lot of it is teaching it the right way and teaching people. I mean, that's not your first thought. Your first thought is to be able to run and pass, right? <laughs> yeah. You, know, you get down to it. But, yeah, I, I know I often have that with um, parents, you know, yeah. who are like, oh, my God, it's so violent. And I'm like, well, yeah. it's not really what I would call violent. I'd say it's aggressive, you know, yeah. very aggressive, but not violent. Yeah, but I think in, in any sport there are opportunities for injury, obviously. And oh, part sure. of becoming good at the sport is – you know, I mean, I'll use soccer as an example because that's what I played um, predominantly growing up. But like, there's a good way to head the ball, and there's a not so good way to head the ball, and there's a good way to slide tackle, and there's a not so good way to slide tackle. Right. And so, you know, from the outside, it it may look like sort of organized chaos or something, but from right. the inside, there's quite a lot of training and and thought that goes into how to play it. And I think because rugby, I mean, the idea is that we tackle. I mean, just the word tackle. Right. Yeah. 
everybody thinks that all you do is just run into each other, like at full speed, just fly into each other, you know, without yeah. thinking, as you say, that we have worked on technique over and over and over to keep people safe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's switch gears again, because something else that uh, kept coming up while I was reading all about the current state of women's rugby <laughs> um, is that many players also have full time careers mm-hmm. and that uh, they're not able to support themselves solely with rugby. Um, I read one article uh, I believe you're actually quoted in it. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> um, Natalie. Natalie Marquino. Um, yes, exactly. Yes. Thank you. Yes. No um, and so she, Natalie Marquino, uh, I read a, a profile of her and her training, and she's also working at Twitter. Um, and she described her her work at Twitter as a way to fund her addiction to rugby, <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yes. laughs> which I thought was a pretty good way to put it. Um so what's kind of the current state of, of women's rugby in the professional sense? And what are the major obstacles for players to make rugby a sustainable living? Well, in the United States, there's nothing professional unless you actually are on the um, women's sevens team. Mm-hmm. That's the only place where they make money. Um, so they're contracted, not all of them. They're barely making money. They're barely living having to live together and, you know, in a house with four or five of them so they can actually afford to, to stay yeah. there and train. Um, but that's the only, the only place they can make money as a rugby player. You won't make it as a 15s player. There's no professional stuff for 15s. Uh, not for women. They just started pro teams for men, but yeah. that's, that's brand new, brand new. So, um, yeah, it's tough. I mean, if you want to play for your national team, you have to, normally, you have to attend camps, of which you will pay to your flight to get there, mm. and you will pay a camp fee for the lodging and food and everything else. Yeah. yeah so, you know, you have to have a job yeah. <laughs> so that you can, like she said, feed your addiction. Yeah. And that's, that's the plight of probably most of the, most of the national team or any, any players, club players, national team players, anybody. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible to... To read about these players and and what their schedules are like and the training regimens that they're on and to think that their incentive is purely just loving to play rugby and wanting to succeed at it. You know, imagine that you you are went to camps and you got picked for the national team and you know you you, I, you can't. It is an addiction. It's like yeah. oh my god, I just have to see this through. And especially the Olympic Olympics, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. Who absolutely. does not want to go to the Olympics? Yeah. You know, I was talking with, on a previous episode, um, Ambie Burfoot, who mm-hmm. had written a book about uh, women's running and specifically women's marathoning. And one of the big highlights for many of the women who spoke to him was the 1984 Olympics, where the women's marathon was the first time it was an Olympic mm-hmm. event. And mm-hmm. definitely that there was just, even for the women who, by the time that came around, they had kind of aged out of, of the competitive side of the sport and the elite side of the sport, that it was just such a moment for them in terms of seeing this thing that they loved come to fruition. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's what's going to be great for us, too. Yeah. I mean, I obviously would be like, oh, I wish I, I mean, even at this age, right, I would like, oh, I wish I could go there. Not that I could have been an Olympian. I don't mean that at all. But just, <laughs> I, I mean, I, the closest I ever came was a World Cup, and, and I'm very, you know, happy about that, and I've got great yeah. memories from it. So I kind of get the whole Olympic thing and how everybody's driving for it. Well, the other part that's interesting about the Olympics is that in order for 
a sport to become an Olympic event, it has to be prominent enough in a in enough other countries mm-hmm. to have a competitive tournament. Um, so, how has women's rugby evolved and developed in other countries and other regions of the world compared to in the U.S.? Well, having you having said that, that might be the third reason why they chose sevens for uh, the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So, because it was going to be hard for some of these other countries to really get a 15s teams going, but yeah. it was easier for them to get seven because you could have 10 girls and there's yeah. your sevens team, right? Mm-hmm. The sevens part of it is just exploding around the world because I think they feel like, oh, it's not as daunting to find people. Hmm. You know, so that's, yeah. but there, there again is probably the other reason they chose seven. It's going to be much easier to get the world to play sevens so that we can make an Olympic sport that was to get, get them to play 15s. So sort of taking a, a bird's eye view at your coaching career, because you've coached at all these different levels between college and club, and you've also uh, coached a, a men's gay team, as I mentioned mm-hmm. in the intro, um, what are the major differences at these levels in how you approach coaching? Well, you know, I think when, um, like the lower levels, and when I say lower levels, like the gay men's team, um, brand new college teams, it's all about just trying to get them to play a little bit and have some fun with it mm-hmm. and not get so kind of stuck into, uh, you know, the the idea and the strategy and everything else because, you can't even understand how to throw a ball. Why not just run with it and do the things that you do naturally? Like, let's yeah. see you run and play and score, because you know how to do that, right? Yeah. And then once they can do those kinds of things, then we can teach them t- some of the techniques and some of the skills. But when you get to the club level, and pretty much when I was at the All Blues, we were getting girls that had already played in college. So we had girls that knew how to play rugby. Yeah. They didn't necessarily have good, good knowledge or strategy knowledge. Um, so that was part of that club is just taking their, their little bit of skill and their fitness and now making them understand the strategy of what we're trying to do on the field other than just, you know, forwards just ruck and maul and yeah. the backs just run the ball kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, and then at the elite level, obviously, it's trying to manage, to tell the truth. It's, you know, you've got so many kids that are, everybody wants to play, everybody's got the skill to be there then how do you manage this group of people? And it's not so much about managing their skill as managing their heads, mm-hmm. from my own personal view. Yeah. Um, you know, like, uh, everybody has to understand what their role is. Yeah. And, you know, where they fit in and how they can help the team, even if they're not on the field, that yeah. type of thing. Yeah. Um, so that's the difference between all those levels for me. And where do you, as a coach look to keep learning about the game or as the game has evolved and gotten more elite and competitive, where have you turned to, to similarly keep your coaching up to speed? Well, I do watch a a lot of rugby. Mm. Um, I I tend to like super rugby, which is Southern hemisphere rugby. Um, They have what's called, I I forget how many teams they have now because they keep adding a team every year, (laughs) but it's, it's Australia, South Africa, and New Zealand, and they have pro teams, they're pro teams. And they play a league, uh, you know, over the summer, they play uh, a league kind of stuff. And there is some, like, fantastic rugby that's going on. It's just all these, <laughs> I'll see somebody do something, I'll be like, hey, what's that? What are they doing now? Oh. And then, <laughs> you know, and then there's a, there's a site that's called the Rugby Site, uh-huh. and it's a coaching site. And they get um, coaches that are well-known coaches now kind of teaching certain things. They have 
teaching entry-level stuff. They have players that are hot in the sevens game now showing some technique stuff. So it's all, I just keep reading all this kind of stuff and watching some stuff to just keep my own stuff kind of current, you know? Yeah. You mentioned kind of some other countries that are powerhouses in the rugby world. Um, are are the same teams where where the men's sport is very popular? Is there a similarity with where the women's sport is popular? Well, in some instances, yes, and some no. So in the in the top in the women's, and I'm talking 15s at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. The top in the women's 15s is England, Canada, New Zealand, probably Australia. Mm-hmm. And I know that in terms of for us, we've always done better 15s than the men have. I, I yeah. don't know if that's because we started... We started playing at a time when they weren't really playing that much, but uh, hmm. honestly, we're falling behind. Hmm. We can't keep up anymore because we now they're being supported by their unions more so mm-hmm. than I think we get supported by our union. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, we won the 91 World Cup, okay? We're, we're, that was fantastic. So from that point on, when we won a World Cup, resources should have been put in to continue that. And yeah. we should have been celebrated and we should have been like, okay, this is a great thing. Not to, and not to the detriment of men. Don't get me wrong. Right? right. But here, part of USA Rugby is the women eagles and the men eagles. And I know that men face different obstacles, maybe some, you know, some funding obstacles. That's what we face. But it's almost like they didn't want to put the resources into us because we might get more... I don't know, be more noticed than the men or, you know, kind of like women's soccer, right? I was about to say, yeah. Yeah, just like women's soccer. You know, I don't know how that's going to happen for us, but I feel like we're not going to keep, we're at sixth place now. I I just feel like in the next World Cup, it may not even be there. Do you see certain, certain points when you look back on the past 20, 30 years or so, like certain transition points where if a different decision had been made, then then maybe it would be a different situation today. Maybe the U.S. team would be more successful. Well, you know, I really think that, and, and because we're an NCAA sport here at Brown and several other places, I really think this initiative could help us in the Olympics, right? What What is this initiative that you're referring to specifically? So for women's rugby to become an NCAA sport. Oh, I see, I see, I see. If girls know they can get into college playing rugby, they're going to start playing younger, right? They're going to they're going to they're going to be looking to play probably when they're in junior high, hmm. so that they have the best opportunity to get a scholarship to go someplace to play rugby. The initiative was started back when I was coaching, so like in 2002. Mm-hmm. And there's been no support. There was no support by the administration to push it forward. So they had ten years to do something. Well, nothing happened in ten years, and then they applied for another ten years. And now we're getting at the end of that ten years. So this was, yeah, like I said, it was started back then. But there was no, there was no impetus behind it. USA Rugby isn't really interested in in it being an NCAA sport. Hmm. Whereas I just think it would be great for young women. And here's the thing: is when you're an NCAA sport or varsity, right? You're, you right. are taken care of. And we right. play a collision sport. Why don't you want your team, you know, and your girls, for one, it legitimizes the sport for young women. Totally. And for two, it, it, if they, they, they are taken care of immediately, you sprain your ankle, you know, immediately you're seeing the trainer. Right. And, you know, God forbid anything else, and we know other things that can happen. Yeah. So, you know, it's just that they have never really supported it. And they don't, I don't know exactly why they don't want to support it. Yeah. Um, but they don't. They don't. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of an uphill, you know, battle with that. 
Yeah, I mean, this reminds me of kind of a question that comes up in tons of different contexts with women's sports. But, you know, there are arguments like, well, if X women's sport were more popular, then we would have then we would pay more attention to it. But is it really the opposite? Like, would we pay more attention to it if you put in the resources and the time and the energy to make it popular? There you are. I mean, I think that's what it is. So, yeah, we're right. We're on the same page right there. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, um, but I do I do think I should mention that uh, later this week, this weekend, you will become the third woman to be inducted into the U.S. Rugby Hall of Fame. Yes. Quite the accomplishment. Congratulations. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm very honored. <laughs> so uh, I want to end with maybe a uh, more philosophical question. Um, but as you are about to receive this really great honor, what's the biggest lesson that rugby has taught you or what's the thing that you've given so much to rugby? What's the thing that rugby has given to you? You know, it's probably going to sound cliche, but I think rugby has taught me to take it moment by moment. Hmm. Um, and the reason I say that is, you know, um, when I first started playing, I mean, I was just a hothead athlete, you know, I, I liked to win, but I was like cranky if I lost and all that type of thing. And <laughs> I hated making mistakes. And, you know, I found that I would get lost in, especially in learning a new sport. I'd get so mad that I would lose the next moment. Hmm. So, you know, it, it taught me to just be in the moment for whatever I'm doing. Right? If I if I do something great, don't have time to celebrate that because we got to move right on to the next thing. If I make a mistake, don't have time to be pissed off about that. I got to move right into the next thing, yeah. and so it's a very zen thing for me. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that's why I've always it, it, rugby has been like a, a meditation for me for my whole life. Um, I, I don't know how to say it any other way than that, um, and I try to impart that upon our kids. Like, you know, you don't have time to think about what happened. Yeah. It's always the next thing. You always have to move on to the next thing. We can reflect later and think about the things that we wish we could have done. <laughs> but, or, you know, or the things that you did well. Yeah. But, but in the moment, you got to stay right in the moment. That's yeah, well, when you only have 14 minutes. <laughs> yeah, honestly, especially in sevens, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, yeah, I really don't have time. <laughs> That's <laughs> definitely the truth, yes. <laughs> yeah, we say in rugby or in sevens, because I coach sevens also, I'll say yeah. next job. You know, when oh. you do something, next job. That's all yeah. you can think all game long, next job. So, yeah. Yep. Well, Kathy, I don't want to keep you from your next job any longer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Um, I appreciate it. <laughs> thanks so much for being on the show. I've certainly learned a lot, and I feel much, much more well-informed to uh, watch women's rugby this summer Good. at the Olympics, and Good. we'll definitely be updating about how the U.S. team is doing. Great. I hope you enjoy <laughs> it, and thank you so much for having me on the show. As I say to all my guests, Kathy, good game. (laughs) Thanks, Maeve. You take care. (laughs) That'll do it for this week. Thanks again to Kathy for joining the show. If you don't already, please follow us on Twitter. We're at NYBF Sports. Give us a like on Facebook, Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show, or shoot us an email, nybfsports at gmail.com. You can also visit the website and sign up for the newsletter to get episodes and a bi-weekly roundup of great sports journalism, Q 
curated by yours truly. It's all delivered straight to your inbox. Go sign up at nybfsports.com. Thanks for joining me. And as always, good game listeners.